Hello and welcome to this on-demand installment of AZ Law here on member-supported Sounds of Arizona and sunsounds.org. I'm your volunteer reader and Phoenix attorney Paul Wyke, and we explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this new program. We have several news articles and commentaries for this installment, several interesting articles and commentaries from a variety of sources, so let's get right to it. Our first article, and we don't get to read uh, articles from the New York Times too often in this program, but this article is from the New York Times, and the headline is, Arizona Files Novel Lawsuit in Supreme Court Over Opioid Crisis. This was published on July 31st by Adam Liptak, dateline out of Washington, although it should be Phoenix. Well, it was filed with the Supreme Court in Washington, so I guess that's appropriate. Here's the article. Saying the opioid crisis requires bold measures, the state of Arizona filed an audacious lawsuit in the Supreme Court on Wednesday asking the justices to order members of the Sackler family, which owns Purdue Pharma, to return what the state said were billions of dollars looted from the company. We want the Supreme Court to make sure that we hold accountable those individuals who are responsible for this epidemic, said Mark Burnovich, Arizona's attorney general. We allege that the Sacklers have siphoned billions of dollars from Purdue in recent years. They did this while knowing the company was facing massive financial liabilities. Lawsuits making similar claims have been brought in several state courts. What distinguishes the new suit is that it was filed directly in the Supreme Court, which almost never hears cases until after lower courts have considered them. I do think it's a long shot, Mr. Burnovich said. It's a little different. It's a little unorthodox. Sometimes you've just got to throw deep. He added that the urgency of the crisis warranted this unusual move. We don't have time for this to take years to wind through the courts, he said. The Supreme Court has jurisdiction and we think they have to act. A spokesman for members of the Sackler family called the accusations in the new lawsuit inconsistent with the factual record and said the family will vigorously defend against them. A lawyer for Purdue, which makes the opioid OxyContin, did not respond to requests for comment. In papers filed in the Supreme Court, lawyers for Arizona wrote that the opioid crisis had contributed to hundreds of thousands of deaths in the last two decades and had cost the United States economy more than $78 billion annually. Over the years, the lawyers wrote, Purdue earned more than $30 billion from sales of OxyContin. Between 2008 and 2016, Purdue transferred more than $4 billion to the Sacklers, according to the new lawsuit. It is commonplace and lawful, of course, for a company's owners to withdraw profits, but the suit contends that the transfers were intended to frustrate efforts by victims of the opioid crisis to obtain compensation. These transfers, the suit said, all took place at times when company officials, including the Sacklers, were keenly aware that Purdue was facing massive financial liabilities and that these transfers could prevent it from satisfying eventual judgments. The Sacklers are now one of the richest families in the United States, and its members have made significant donations to museums and other cultural institutions. Several museums have announced that they will no longer take money from the family, and the Louvre Museum in Paris recently said that it had removed the Sackler name from its Sackler wing of Oriental Antiquities. The Constitution gives the U.S. Supreme Court, quote-unquote, original jurisdiction to hear disputes in which a state shall be a party. 
In such cases, the Supreme Court acts much like a trial court, appointing a special master to hear the evidence and issue recommendations. Though the Constitution seems to require the court to hear cases brought by states, the court has ruled that it has discretion to turn them down, and often does. When the court does exercise its original jurisdiction, it is usually to adjudicate disputes between two states over issues like water rights. And in fact, I'll throw in that we've been covering here at AZ Law, we've been covering the other original jurisdiction suit that Arizona filed against the state of California regarding taxes recently. And we hope to have updates on that as the Supreme Court starts its term in the fall. Back to the article. In 2016, the justices turned down a request from Nebraska and Oklahoma to file a challenge to Colorado's legalization of recreational marijuana. Those states said the Colorado law had spillover effects, taxing neighboring states' criminal justice systems and hurting the health of their residents. Justice Clarence Thomas, joined by Justice Samuel Alito Jr., dissented, saying that the case presented a substantial question and that the court was required to hear it. Federal law does not on its face give this court discretion to decline to decide cases within its original jurisdiction, wrote Justice Thomas. Drawing on that dissent, Arizona asked the Supreme Court to overrule decisions that allowed it to turn down cases filed by states directly in the court. Failing that, Arizona asked the court to allow it to sue in the Supreme Court as a matter of discretion. Absent resolution in a single form, the state's lawyers wrote, these disputes will be fought over and over in nearly every state in the nation. This is likely to take years, lead to inconsistent judgments, and create an inequitable distribution of money damages. William Consovoy, one of Arizona's lawyers, said there was no time to waste. The urgency is a big deal here, he said. It is very important that we get this resolved expeditiously, and that is one of the key reasons why the Supreme Court is the right place to do this and to do this now. Mr. Consovoy is also representing President Trump in legal clashes with House Democrats seeking his tax returns and business records. Arizona's lawsuit is based on the Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act, which has been adopted in most states and forbids companies from making some kinds of transfers of assets when they are insolvent or likely to run out of money in order to to pay creditors. The Supreme Court does not ordinarily hear cases based on asserted violations of state laws. The unusual Supreme Court filing may reflect jockeying among states and local governments for a leading role in the settlement negotiations. Vast sums may be at stake. In March, the company and the family agreed to pay $270 million in connection with the settlement of a suit brought by the state of Oklahoma. In October, Judge Dan Aaron Polster of the Federal District Court in Cleveland is scheduled to preside over trials in a test case even as he seeks to resolve some 2,000 federal lawsuits brought by cities, counties, and Native American tribes against the key players in the opioid crisis. And that article was published on July 31st by Adam Liptak in the New York Times, Arizona Files Novel Lawsuit in Supreme Court Over Opioid Crisis. And we have here at AZ Law, we have that complaint uh, pulled up and printed out. Let's just read the two-paragraph nature of the action. This is the summary of the case at the beginning of this uh, 
filing by Arizona, and it gives a good summary. Defendants Richard Sackler, Teresa, Kathy, Jonathan, Mortimer, Beverly, David, and Eileen Sackler left court otherwise known as the Sacklers, for decades owned and controlled the Purdue Frederick Company, also Purdue Pharma Inc. and Purdue Pharma LP, collectively known as Purdue. The Sacklers and Purdue have made billions of dollars off the promotion and sale of opioids, fueling a crisis with devastating effects in Arizona and the nation. The Sacklers and Purdue reaped profits through misleading marketing tactics that were barred by a 2000 consent judgment, 2007 consent judgment rather, that Purdue entered with the state of Arizona. The state is seeking civil penalties and other relief for violation of that consent judgment in a, in a pending case before Pima County Superior Court. The state brings this action because it has evidence that the Sacklers, Purdue, and the other defendants were parties in recent years to massive cash transfers totaling billions of dollars at a time when Purdue faced enormous exposure for its role in fueling the opioids crisis. These transfers threaten the ability of Purdue to satisfy any relief the state may obtain in its pending proceeding against Purdue. The state therefore brings this action to hold the defendants accountable for their attempts to loot Purdue and to ensure that the people of Arizona can obtain adequate relief for the devastation that the Sacklers and Purdue have wrought in this state. And that's uh, the summary of the lawsuit brought by Arizona in the Supreme Court against the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. Well, next, let's read this article that was published this past Tuesday, August 6th, on AZ Law at Arizona'sLaw.org. And I reported this. Ninth Circuit rejects Governor Ducey argument expedites appeal regarding special election for the McCain Senate seat. Here's the article. The Ninth Circuit rejected Doug Ducey's arguments late last week and ordered that the appeal challenging the Arizona governor's control of the U.S. Senate seat that was previously held by John McCain be expedited. Nonetheless, oral argument on the demand for a special election will not be held before November. AZ Law has been reporting on the twists and turns since the case was filed last November, several months after McCain passed away and the governor had tapped former Senator John Kyle to temporarily fill the position. The passage of time has not been the friend of the plaintiffs who claim that the Senate succession law passed by the Arizona legislature during McCain's battle with glioblastoma is unconstitutional. Indeed, Ducey's attorneys explained to the Ninth Circuit that expediting the appeal could, would not save much time and that we are, are already getting too close to the November 2020 special election to decide who will serve the last two years of McCain's term. After Kyle stepped down in December, Ducey appointed Martha McSally to serve for 2019 and 2020, and McSally is running to serve out the following two years. The governor's opposition, submitted by the two outside law firms representing his office in this matter, states simply, expediting briefing by approximately one month does not change the practical reality that the appellants are asking this court to order a special statewide election that might advance the date to select the person to complete Senator McCain's term by a few months at most. It also echoes pointed comments from district court judge that plaintiff's attorneys created some of the delays. The judge took a few months to rule that the new Arizona law did not violate the U.S. Constitution. 
The three-judge panel in the Ninth Circuit, two of whom are from Arizona, rejected the governor's response without explanation. The initial appellate brief will be due on August 28th, and the court is looking to set the expedited oral argument in November. That article was published on Tuesday, August 6th at arizonaslaw.org. Also, our original reporting is that the Senate had the U.S. Senate has confirmed Michael Liberti for an Arizona U.S. District Court judgeship. The Senate voted. It was published on July 29th, by the way. The Senate voted 53 to 37 to confirm Liberti, Mike Liberti, as the newest U.S. District Court judge for the District of Arizona. Both of Arizona's senators, Republican Martha McSally and Democrat Kirsten Sinema, voted to confirm. AZ Law has been following the confirmation process since Governor Ducey's former general counsel was nominated for this lifetime judicial position in January. And while the six months may seem like a long confirmation period, the Judiciary Committee approved him back in March. Close watchers of the process indicated that this is not a stretched-out nomination battle. Both Arizona's senators spoke in favor of confirming Liberty, which makes his confirmation more which made his confirmation more likely in the Republican-controlled Senate. However, his previous work on behalf of the Republican Party and the Arizona Right to Life PAC, he was the chairman, may have prevented him from getting too many Democratic votes. That was published on July 29th on Arizona'sLaw.org. Our next article is reported by Howard Fisher from Capital Media Services. The headline is Arizona Court Limits Police Access to Online Personal Information. It was published on July 30th. Arizonans have a constitutional right to online privacy to keep police from snooping around to find out who they are without first getting a warrant, the State Court of Appeals has ruled. In what appears to be the first ruling of its kind in the state, the majority said Internet users have a reasonable expectation of privacy that the information they furnish about themselves to Internet providers will be kept secret. That specifically includes who they are and their home address. What that means, the court said, is that police and government agencies cannot obtain that information, the gateway to finding out exactly who is posting material, without a search warrant, and that requires a showing of some criminal activity. The ruling is particularly significant because federal courts have consistently ruled that once people furnish that information to a third party, in this case the company that provides them internet service, they have given up any expectation of privacy. And that means the Fourth Amendment protections of the U.S. Constitution against unreasonable search and seizure no longer apply and the government no longer needs a warrant. But appellate judge Carl Epich, writing for the court, said that argument won't wash in Arizona, and the key is Arizona's state constitution. No person shall be disturbed in his private affairs or his home invaded without authority of law, that provision reads. By contrast, the U.S. Constitution has no specific right of privacy. This case involves what essentially amounts to a sting operation in Pima County, where a police detective investigating child exploitation placed an ad on an internet advertising forum inviting those interested in child pornography and incest to contact him. According to court records, William Mixton responded, sending him images of child pornography. 
The detective then got federal agents to issue an administrative subpoena to obtain Mixton's IP address, essentially a number assigned to users connected to the Internet so that no two are the same. Those numbers can be either static or random. With the IP address, the detective was able to identify Mixton's internet provider, which in turn led to his street address. At that point, with a search warrant, police seized computers with images of child pornography. He was found guilty of 20 20 counts of sexual exploitation of a minor younger than 15 and then sentenced to 17 years in prison on each to be served consecutively. Mixton argued that the police never should have been able to get his IP address in the first place without an actual warrant. Epich acknowledged that Mixton has no basis for his contention, at least under the U.S. Constitution, as he had voluntarily provided information to a third party, his Internet provider, to get service. But its Arizona counterpart with its specific right of privacy, the judge said, is something quite different. In the Internet era, the electronic storage capacity of third parties has in many cases replaced the personal desk drawer as the repository of sensitive personal and business information, information that would unquestionably be protected from warrantless government searches if on a paper desk or on a paper in a desk at a home or an office, he wrote. The judge wrote further, the third-party doctrine allows the government a peek at this information in a way that is the 21st century equivalent of a trip through a home to see what books and magazines the residents read, who they correspond with or call, and who they transact with and the nature of those transactions, the judge said. We doubt that the framers of our state constitution intended the government to snoop in our private affairs without obtaining a search warrant. Burkliffs specifically rejected arguments by prosecutors that Internet users give up their expectation of privacy because they voluntarily reveal their identity to get service. The user provides the information for the limited purpose of obtaining service, he wrote. It is entirely reasonable for the user to expect the provider not to exceed that purpose by revealing the user's identity to authorities in a way that connects it to his or her activities on the Internet. Epic warned against giving such broad power, said it effectively would give the government unfettered ability to learn the identity behind anonymous speech, even without any showing or even suspicion of unlawful activity. And the implications, he said, are broader than that. The right of free association, for example, is hollow when the government can identify an association's members through subscriber information matched with particular Internet activity. To allow the government to obtain without a warrant information showing who a person communicates with and what websites he or she visits may reveal a person's associations and therefore intrude on a person's right to privacy in those associations. Judge Philip Espinoza, in his dissent, said he does not read the state constitutional protections so broadly. On one hand, he acknowledged the vast amount of data being generated through electronics, with everything from cell phones, electronic tablets, smartwatches, and even modern automobiles all subject to pervasive tracking cookies. Much of the resulting information is and should be constitutionally protected, he wrote. But he said information like an IP number should not have have constitutional protection any more than, for example, a personal telephone number. 
Anyway, Espinosa said, none of what he called the parade of potential horribles cited by Epich is at issue here. Instead, he said, the information was legitimately sought by law enforcement solely to reveal the source of suspected child pornography distribution. And Espinosa said he finds no First Amendment protections at issue, saying that this case involves criminally perverted speech, which is not constitutionally protected. As it turns out, the appellate court upheld Mixton's conviction anyway, because the police, in the end, eventually had a warrant. That article was from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. The headline, Arizona Court Limits Police Access to Online Personal Information. And we contacted the assistant public defender who argued this case in front of the Court of Appeals, and she gave us this explanation about the opinion and how she communicated it to fellow public defenders. Today, for the first time, an Arizona court, in this case Division I of the Court of Appeals, has held that Article II, Section 8 of Arizona's Constitution grants broader protection than the Fourth Amendment outside the context of a physical invasion of a home. Specifically, Judges Epich and Eckerstrom hold that the federal third-party doctrine does not apply under the state constitution. Therefore, the police were required to obtain a warrant to obtain William Mixton's IP address and subsequently his name and address, and obtaining that information through a Federal Customs Bureau subpoena was illegal. However, they did affirm Mixton's convictions and sentences, holding that the good faith exception to the warrant requirement applies under both the U.S. Fourth Amendment and Arizona's Constitution, since every federal court and only a few state courts have held that such information is not entitled to protection. The heart of the opinion was in paragraphs 27 through 33, and it blows me away to read such broad concern for personal privacy from an Arizona court. Similarly, stirring language appears in Eckerstrom's partial dissent, in which he argues that after U.S. v. Carpenter, the same protections should apply under the Fourth Amendment. Jensen also tells us that she would expect the Attorney General's office to ask the Arizona Supreme Court to revisit the privacy portion of this decision. The Attorney General's office has not commented publicly, and no appeal has yet been filed. Well, it looks like we have time for one more interesting article, and this one is reported by the Arizona Daily Star. Kurt Prendergast uh, wrote this analysis, Cartel Scout Cases Show Potential Future of Border Aid Prosecutions. Here's the article. It was published on August 5th, or updated on August 5th, that is. The last two years saw a rash of criminal charges against border aid workers in southern Arizona, raising questions about the future of humanitarian aid in a deadly border crossing area. A roadmap to that future may be found by looking back on how the U.S. Attorney's Office went after cartel scouts and then expanded their pursuit to the variety of roles needed to support the scouts, according to an analysis of cases and trends in U.S. District Court in Tucson by the Arizona Daily Star. As the U.S. Attorney's Office pursued charges against nine volunteers with Tucson-based humanitarian aid group No More Deaths, prosecutors in Tucson also expanded the scope of cases involving cartel scouts. Those scouts spend weeks on mountains west of Tucson and act as sort of air traffic controllers, as one Border Patrol agent put it, for the marijuana backpackers in the valleys below. 
Prosecutors broke new legal ground in 2015 when a judge ruled that a man working as a scout on a mountaintop near Ajo could be charged with conspiring to smuggle marijuana despite not having any marijuana when he was arrested. Since then, scout cases have grown to include scout helpers who cook and fetch supplies for the scouts, drivers who drop off supplies, homeowners who store supplies, people buying groceries or wiring money to pay for supplies, and other roles. If a jury were to convict Scott Warren, a volunteer with no more deaths, at a retrial coming up for in November, he would be the first border aid worker convicted of felony human smuggling charges in Tucson's federal court in more than a decade. Judging by what the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona has done when breaking new legal ground with scout cases, any future trials of border aid workers potentially could see nurses, doctors, volunteers, or even donors to no more deaths sitting at the defense table instead of in a, the courtroom gallery. During Warren's trial in June, Susanna Brown bowed her head and pinched the bridge of her nose as she sat in the gallery of a federal courtroom in Tucson. A federal prosecutor was telling jurors that Brown, a 67-year-old nurse who works with humanitarian aid groups in southern Arizona, conspired with Warren and others to smuggle two Central American men across the U.S.-Mexico border in January 2018 and to help them get to Phoenix. Brown regularly treats migrants for a number of ailments and, and injuries at a shelter in Sonoida, the Mexican border town south of Ajo. She and her fellow volunteers also bring a truck with a big tank of water to the shelter, which has an unreliable hookup to the municipal water system. In January of 2018, Brown attended to the two Central American men at an aid station in Ajo known as The Barn, and Dr. Norma Price gave a medical consultation by phone. Prosecutors at Warren's trial also said Arenio Mujica, the operator of the migrants' shelter in Sonoida, arranged to help the two Central Americans get to Ajo. Brown, Price, and Mujica were not charged with any offenses, but they remained in the crosshairs of the U.S. Attorney's Office as Warren's trial ended. So what the evidence shows in this case is that the defendant, Renio Mujica and Susanna Brown and the others conspired to further Christian and Jose's illegal journey into the United States, federal prosecutor Anna Wright told the jurors in her closing arguments, according to a court transcript. Wright also referred to two No More Deaths volunteers when she told jurors that in the days after the arrest, at least two people intentionally went to the barn and took things out, and they took those things out to help the defendant, and they handed those things over to the defendant. Rather than make money, Warren gets to, fur gets to further the goals of the organization that he is a high-ranking leader in, and one of those goals, although never stated outright, is to thwart Border Patrol at every possible turn to further the entry of illegal aliens, Wright told jurors. The Border Patrol also viewed No More Deaths as a smuggling organization, according to Agent John Marquez's report detailing Warren's arrest. No More Deaths was long suspected of illegally harboring and aiding illegal aliens, and a search warrant for their illicit activities was recently executed at their humanitarian station near Aravaca, Arizona, Marquez wrote. He was referring to the raid of a No More Deaths camp near Aravaca in June of 2017. Agents had followed the footprints of four people suspected of crossing the border illegally. No volunteers were arrested, but they later said the raid and the surveillance that preceded it signaled a heightened level of tension between No More Deaths and the Border Patrol. Warren's trial ended with a mistrial after the jury split 8-4 to four favoring acquittal.
After more than a year of arguing that Warren was part of a conspiracy, prosecutors dropped the conspiracy charge when they announced in July their plan to retry Warren on harboring charges. Marijuana backpackers have trekked through the desert west of Tucson for many years, often led by scouts using binoculars and encrypted radios to keep the backpacking groups spread apart, as well as to let them know if Border Patrol agents were approaching. Until 2015, prosecutors would charge scouts only with crossing the border illegally. But a judge's ruling in Tucson's federal court in 2015, followed by two Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decisions in 2017, opened the door for scouts to face conspiracy charges. In the years that followed, prosecutors have charged at least 100 scouts with conspiring to smuggle marijuana court records show. As time went on, agents and prosecutors started targeting not only scouts, but the network of people who supported them. In one ongoing case, Border Patrol agents arrested Jose Angel Felix Ramirez, the suspected head scout for a drug trafficking trafficking organization, and more than a dozen people accused of conspiring to smuggle loads of marijuana through the mountainous areas of the Tohono O'odham Nation. In that case, agents arrested scouts and backpackers, helpers who picked up groceries, batteries, and other supplies at the base of mountains, drivers who brought supplies to the mountains, a man who let the scouts use his house in a nearby village to store supplies, a woman in Phoenix who bought the supplies, and a woman who loaned her car to supply drivers and paid people to buy supplies, according to plea agreements. As prosecutors expanded the roles that could be included in the conspiracies, they also expanded how much marijuana a scout could be held responsible for conspiring to smuggle. Initially, scouts were accused of conspiring to smuggle the equivalent of one backpack of marijuana. As time went on, prosecutors started accusing scouts of conspiring to smuggle all the marijuana backpacks that were caught in the scouts' view sheds, or their line of sight, while the scouts were on the mountain. In the Felix case, members of the conspiracy were connected to about 4,300 pounds of marijuana, prosecutors said. Under the prosecution's theory of Warren's case, getting back to the humanitarian aid workers, he acted as part of a criminal conspiracy. That theory is in many ways analogous to theories put forth by prosecutors in the scout cases. From that prosecutorial line of thinking, if an aid volunteer cooked for a migrant who came into an aid station from the desert, how different would that be from helpers cooking for scouts on a mountaintop? If a volunteer drove jugs of water, beans, socks, or gear to an aid station in Ajo or in Aravaca, how different would that be from a person driving bags of food, batteries, and gear to the base of a mountain where the scout worked? If a Tucson resident donated money to No More Deaths to buy the water and aid for migrants, how different would that be from the people in Phoenix buying supplies for the marijuana scouts? If a volunteer said they had worked at an aid station for a week, could they be charged with aiding the illegal border crossings of however many migrants were caught in that area in the previous week? U.S. Attorney Michael Bailey, who took the position in May, declined to be interviewed but issued a statement to the star. Those who want only to give water to the thirsty should be commended, Bailey said. On the other hand, when one's true goal is to assist an illegal immigrant in getting in without getting caught, such conduct is subject to prosecution. 
Nine No More Deaths volunteers, including Warren, were charged with misdemeanors related to leaving water and food on the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge in 2017. The charges included driving on unauthorized roads and abandoning property on the refuge. The bottom line is that prosecutors could not convince a jury that Warren was guilty of any charges, said Paige Korch-Climb, a No More Deaths volunteer. Prosecutors could try to cast a wide net, but they would essentially be arguing that keeping people from dying is furthering illegal presence, and I doubt any jury would agree with that, Korch-Climb said. Aid workers, Border Patrol agents, hunters, and others in southern Arizona have recovered nearly 3,000 sets of human remains believed to belong to migrants since the year 2001. Andy Silverman, a law professor at the University of Arizona and a member of the No More Deaths legal team, said the difference between the scout cases and Warren's case is that Warren was not involved in illegal activity. As they say, humanitarian aid is never a crime, he wrote in response to an inquiry from the Star. However, charging Scott and trying him for serious offenses, even though ultimately he should be found not guilty, does have a chilling effect on people considering doing humanitarian work along the border, Silverman wrote. But it will not stop such work, he further wrote. Helping others in need has been part of our culture, and the threat of criminal charges will not stop good folks from trying to save lives in our desert regions. Silverman said he would expect a large public backlash if prosecutors start charging all people who do the humanitarian work. We have seen it in the Warren case, and it would be even greater if the government starts to go after, for example, health professionals, shelter operators, and others helping people in the deadly deserts along the border, Silverman wrote. A status conference in Warren's case is now scheduled, was scheduled for this past Monday. His retrial is scheduled to start November 12th. So that was an interesting analysis by Kurt Prendergast of the Arizona Daily Star. He's been he covered the Scott Warren trial and is obviously intending to cover the future trials as well. The headline on that was cartel scout cases show potential future of border aid prosecutions. And we'll be following that case as well. We'll be looking for Kurt Prendergast's reporting on that. And with that, we reached the end of this on-demand installment of AZ Law. Our next installment will be broadcast on Sun Sounds of Arizona on Saturday, August 17th at 11 a.m. By the way, we are also excited to let you know that you can now download AZ Law or listen to it at Apple's iTunes Podcasts. Google Play Music and Podcasts, and also on Spotify. And of course, that's in addition to listening or downloading it at sunsounds.org and also at arizonaslaw.org. That's Arizona's Law without an apostrophe in there. So all those places. And of course, your comments and suggestions to make our program better are always welcome. Contact us at either info at sunsounds.org or paul.wyke, W-E-I-C-H, dot A-Z-Law at gmail.com. So I'm your volunteer reader and Phoenix attorney Paul Wyke thanking you for tuning in and urging you to keep listening to member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. (laughs) 